Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Professor David Clayton. Thank you very much. Right, so the transcendentals. Uh, when I started off, I, I just wanted to be an artist and serve the church. I had... I, converted. Um, instrumental uh, in my conversion was the beauty of the art and the music that I saw uh, in the church and especially um, the liturgy um, and the way that it connected to the liturgy is a church called the Brompton Oratory, the London Oratory, um, where I was just uh, transported by what I saw. Um, and that impression, I can still remember that first impression. I, I mention it in many, many talks that I give because it, was, it really is the thing that set me on the way, the beauty of the worship of God when it's done well and all the art forms that go with it. And when it's in, they're all working together, the architecture, the art, just the, the posture and the disposition of the people. Um, everything is in harmony. It speaks of God. Um, and I didn't know what I was receiving um, but that's what it was telling me. And, and uh, as I say, it, took, it probably was three or four years later I actually converted, but that impression of the beauty of the worship of God is what opened my soul, opened me up, so that I was willing to listen and I, was, I wanted to know more about this, where this came from. Um, and so when I became a Catholic, um, I started to say, I, I'd like to contribute, contribute to this. I, I can paint a bit, I think, so let's, let's have a go. I'd like to train up and start doing it. And I remember I started to look at the traditions, the Catholic traditions in art, and I saw these you know, beautiful pieces of work. Here is a crucifixion by Velazquez. Um, and I thought, I, I'd like to paint like that. Um, and then I'd see pieces like that. And I would look at it, so this is early 20th century, and I can't remember the, the, the actual piece where this struck me, because it was something that was commissioned in a church in London. Um, and my personal reaction to it was that when I look at it, everything is there that seems to be right, the content seems to be there, in that sense it's true, I, I think, as far as I could tell. Um, but I just know that that looks ugly to me. Now, if, if you don't think it's ugly, that's, your, that's fine. That's your opinion. I can't, I can't tell you you're wrong at this point. Um, and that's half the problem. And we'll get, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second. There's a subjective element in this. Um, but I knew that I w didn't like it, and it didn't seem appropriate to me for the liturgy. I didn't think that if I'd wandered into the, the church the Brompton Oratory, and the art, all the art that I saw, the mosaics, the angels flying across the ceiling, which when I looked up, thinking, I heard the music, and I thought, this is the, the sound of angels singing, and I looked up to see where the choir was, and I saw an angel flying across the roof in mosaic. And I remember thinking, all of this is gathering, 
through the senses is gathering me up, so to speak, and thrusting me forward. I don't think if I'd seen an angel done in that style, I would have reacted in the same way. I think I'd have been repelled. Um, now, that doesn't mean, as I say, I must stress, that doesn't mean that everybody ought to feel like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that's my re that was my reaction. And I wanted to know why. Is it just, is it just a personal thing? Maybe it's legitimate, and when it comes down to it, uh, it's, the, it's the taste of the priest or whoever's paying for it is what counts, and then really we can't argue beyond that. Um, and I found out that there are, in fact, certain guidelines, and what I had to do was start looking at the nature of, of beauty. I had to investigate, and beauty is one of these transcendentals, and we'll, we'll describe them later, as is truth. So I said, I think it's true. The content seems to be true. Um, and so is it, is it possible that it, that it can seem to be true when I examine it in one respect, but it's, it seems to be ugly when I examine it in another respect? Is it possible for something to be both to tr be true on the one hand and ugly on the other? Um, these were questions that I had. Um, and as I started to investigate further, we'd see pieces, uh, here's another crucifixion. This is 16th century um, by the, well, he was in Alsace, so I think currently France. Uh, the artist is called Grunewald. Um, and on the face of it, it's a painting of an ugly object, a distorted figure, you might say. Um, it's Christ, of course. Um, but... When I, I found out, when I started to look at the, uh, the background of the painting and read about it, that this is a painting that was in a hospital in uh, Alsace-Lorraine, somewhere in, in eastern France. Um, and the people who were in this hospital were suffering from a fungus, a horrible disease that caused them to break out in their skin very, very nastily, and it was a fungus that was in the rye bread. And so, actually, they didn't realize that was the cause, and so in the hospital, they provided them with food, sustenance, and water, and were actually contributing still to the, to the disease. Um, now, what they used to do was uh, people would worship in front of this, and Christ is bearing the symptoms of the disease that the people were suffering from in the hospital. So that is saying... To, to those people, he is bearing, he is with you, he is suffering with you, he has compassion. Um, and once you know that, then I imagine to those people that would be a beautiful painting because of what, the, because what they understand in connection with it. So it's not simply the appearance. Um, it's possible to have a beautiful painting of something that is apparently ugly, shall we say, or distorted, but once we understand it fully, our perception of it can change so that the very sight of it becomes a different prospect. Um, and, of course, what's happening there is it's, it's a response in love is what is changing. Just as um, those that we, to, to a mother, um, her baby is the most beautiful baby in the world. And I've, I, I talk to mothers about this. Um, I've had this conversation so many times, and, and uh, you'd say, well, I, you know, the, uh, my baby is the most beautiful in the world. I say, well, 
clearly you believe that because you're the baby's mother, his or her mother, and you love her. Um, but we don't know that for certain. He said, oh, yes, that's absolutely right. But my baby is the most beautiful woman. <laughs> it, it's beyond the conception because of the love, the intense love that she has. It, it's, there's no doubt there that this baby is the most beautiful. Now, we know objectively that all people are beautiful, but some are more beautiful than others. Um, and in the eyes of God, the reason that we might perceive people as ugly is our deficiency in love, actually. We can't, we can't see people fully as they are. Um, and the, the, the reason that the mother sees her baby as beautiful um, in the most intense way is because of the extreme love she has for her. Now, God sees everybody as they really are, even more beautiful, as, with even greater beauty than the mother sees her baby. Um, that is the truth. That is what we know objectively. Um, so, there's so, obviously, there is a perception here. There's a reaction in us which is affecting whether we see something is beautiful or not. Um, and so I had to try and discover all of this. And um, as an artist, I wanted to know, I'm brush in hand, I want to paint a beautiful picture. Does the brush go left or does the brush go right? I, I wanted almost at that level. I wanted direction. And I have to say, I found um, a lot of the discussion of aesthetics and of course, it's philosophy and it's an aspect of beauty is one of the transcendentals. Um, so I've just pointed out this is relevant to the subject. That um, um, I found it very, very difficult to understand that, that it's relevance to my wanting to paint. Um, and, but I couldn't see it because most of the people who talked about it were philosophers. It's not that what they were saying was bad in any way. They weren't artists and they didn't understand art. Um, and so what I had to do was approach it from both directions as an artist. And I wanted to root this in ordinary everyday experience and how can this direct me in my art. Um, and so I'm going to use art. I felt that this helped me in trying to grasp it at, a, at an understandable level. I'm going to try and use that experience to explain the other transcendentals as well. So you'll see me hop into artistic examples from time to time, just because that's what I know best. And it's the way that I approach the whole subject. It's the reason I became interested at all, um, was because I wanted to be able to paint well. Um, and as we can see, already we've, t we've touched on some very simple questions. When I look at that, I'm saying, is it a good piece of art? Is it beautiful? Is it true? I, these are the questions that come to mind. And, when this, this piece, which wasn't this one, as I say, this piece in London was commissioned, and we were walking out of the church, we saw it for the first time, this is the, the, the conversation we had. I don't think it's much good. I don't, it's not very beautiful. I think it's ugly. Uh, well, it seems to be true. These are the, the common, this is the way that the conversation took place at an ordinary level. And so we have to be able to understand these things at that level of common conversation if we're going to be able to... to benefit from them, or, or certainly I have to. I, that's what I think. Um, so that's what I'm going to try and do. Okay, so what is a transcendental? Um, so transcendent, the word transcendent means beyond. 
Um, and typically, um, a transcendental means a property of being, and we have to discuss what being is. I'm going to get onto that in a second. Um, transcendentals are properties of being um, beyond any one particular group, type, or category of being, yet are they, they are proper to each. So what it's saying is that everything that exists, everything that has being, uh, everything that is a being, um, has certain properties that connects all of us. Um, and it doesn't matter what category or subcategory of, of thing we're talking about, they're all connected. And furthermore, it goes beyond the normal sort of existence that we are aware of, the material existence, shall we say, the, the, what we see around us in the universe. Um, it conceives the possibility of different sorts of being that are, might be outside our common experience. We might be able to infer that they exist or deduce that they exist, but we don't generally experience them. Um, so we're talking here of the spiritual world. Um, and so transcendental properties go beyond the material, but they still include it. Okay, this is the point. It, it covers everything. Um, and what can be slightly confusing, or it was to me, is when you talk about something being transcendent, uh, generally, in a philosophical context, as far as I can tell, very often you're referring only to that bit beyond the physical. So the, the, the trans, uh, God is transcendent, he's not physical. So, um, and so it's something to be aware of. Sometimes it can mean excluding, when that word is used, excluding the, the material. But in, in the discussion we're having today, we mean including. We're, we're covering everything, all forms of existence. If we don't get to grips with this, in fact, we have no basis for any discussion. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had these. I mean, in the, the life that I've had, a lot of this is about art. And we end up just saying, well, I like this and I like this, and then we disagree and we can go no further, um, and you just don't know what to do. Um, and it becomes very frustrating. Um, now, why do we have this different perception? And talking about the truths of the faith, for example, um, or anything that we disagree about, almost any field, you will find that the reason that people disagree, for example, infuriating political discussion, for example, um, people, people will assume that the other person has have different aims, uh, different intentions. But it's quite possible, as you know, for people to, have, to intend the good of mankind but have a totally different idea of how that is manifested. Now, there's different reasons why that should be. But very often, a lot of these differences, the reasons the two people just end up talking at each other and there's no engagement is because somewhere deep down in the process of the conclusions that they've drawn and they're presenting to you, they've made certain assumptions about the nature of what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, and they're different to yours. And until you know what those are, you, you almost can't have any conversation with them. Um, now, the difficulty here is that most people, and I was like this until I started to investigate these things, aren't aware that they're making these assumptions. It, it's, they're just reacting at a natural level to things that are happening around them. The information that they're fed at school about certain starting assumptions in life, for example, or through their families, through society, they don't know that, that's, that everything is derived from certain key assumptions. So if we want to have an engagement, 
then we need to get right down to these core assumptions and make sure they're correct. Um, now, how do we know ours are correct and not theirs? Well, which, which the answer is, is faith to a certain level. We'll get to that in a second. But the assumption would be we're working from a position of faith that if our assumptions are true, then all of life is, a, is, a, is an integrated whole that we deal with, all of faith and morals. There are no contradictions there because our starting place is good. Um, if I'm dealing with somebody and they have wrong assumptions somewhere, there's going to be a contradiction, a, a, a gap will appear, something will seem wrong. And um, I, I always wanted to have one of these conversations, it's never happened, of course, where we, stop, we can actually stop the person talking for a moment, go work down to their assumptions and then demonstrate that if, they, if that's their assumption, then they're going to contradict themselves as you work through the logic of their conclusions. Um, now, as I say, I've never had one of those conversations, but what investigating this did for me was realize, first of all, it's reaffirmed, it reinforced my faith that everything is consistent with reason um, and that uh, really confirmed the truth of it and the conviction, even if at times I'm unable to articulate it properly or well. I don't know if you've ever had those conversations. If only I'd said this or I didn't really... Okay, it's, we, I, I can never manage that very well. Afterwards, I, I work out the perfect conversation, what I should have said, but at the time it never... But at least I can go back and say, okay, this is what I, I could have said, this is what ought to be true. Perhaps if it happens again, I can say it. But if, what it's doing, it's benefiting me in thinking in this way. It's helping to reinforce the faith. And um, a number of times, I've been challenged in, in my faith, um, and... I thought, oh gosh, I can't answer that. Maybe this is something I'm just going to have to ignore. And then when I investigated it, right down to these, these basic assumptions, and these aren't the only ones, by the way, but they are key assumptions um, in the way that we approach the, these topics, um, then I realized that the, what the church teaches is true. There's nothing has failed so far um, when I've had those doubts um, because... Um, when you go right down to the, the, the starting point, where we begin, the church has it right. And it's the one institution that preserves these. I'm going to be coming back to that at the end. It, without the church, I believe there is no philosophy, even though philosophy, or no true philosophy that can be sustained and, and can be preserved because, um, because of the nature of the church. And as I say, we'll get to that later. Okay. So I think that's why it's worth doing. Um, so where do we start? Well, the answer is, for philosophy, anyway, is common experience. Um, now, it's, and I put not in a book, um, and I say that because I, as Thomas More, which is a great books program, uh, many of the um, really good Catholic colleges pride themselves in referring to the great books, quite rightly. This is a, a good thing. But the point is, that it doesn't start in a book. The person had to write the book, and even if we go back to the original sources, so whether it's Thomas Aquinas or Aristotle or whoever we're looking at, where do they begin? They begin by observation of their own experiences and what they see as the experience of others. So they're trying to observe um, what, what they do. So... Um, Really, the truth of this depends upon the right analysis 
of common experience? Is there a consensus that this is what is right? Um, and so I'm not trying to undermine Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas, far from it. I think their, their observations and their analyses are brilliant and profound. Um, but we need to understand that's where it starts. It doesn't start by opening a book of Aristotle. It, it started with them by looking at common experience. And that means then that we can try and validate this. We can ask ourselves, does this tie in with my experience? Um, and it's always um, something to, to think about. Um, here are the, the, the key assumptions that are important for the transcendentals. We said they're properties of being, they're common to all that exists. So we just have to work on this, an assumption that existence is a reality. Things really do exist. I am. I exist. Um, and it exists. When I look at you, I believe that you exist. You're not just a figment of my imagination. It's not simply an image which exists in my mind. You are real. Okay? Now, sometimes I can be deceived. Sometimes things are images. Um, one of the marks of sanity is to be able to distinguish between image, in, or should we say mental reality, and physical reality, if I can put it like that. Um, but... Um, the assumption here is that there is existence. Um, and that's really important. You, most people work on that basis in their everyday lives. They never give it a second thought. Um, and so it's a, it's a natural assumption to make. The only places where it isn't are the philosophy departments of universities. Um, and anywhere where that thinking has worked its way down and they try and introduce a doubt about that into people's mind, and that's half the problem. Um, but if you, if you, even those people, whatever they write in their papers, I would suggest, if you look at the way they go about their daily business, and I'm sure they've worked out some way of reconciling this, um, they behave as though that is true. They have to. I, I don't see how else you can operate in life. So, but that's where we're starting, and, and I'm not going to... We should really let others who have different points of view defend themselves, so I, it's, not, it's unfair for me to represent one side. But the point I want to make is, predominantly, that's where we start, okay? Existence is a reality. I exist, you exist, it exists. There, it has, and another way of saying that, it has being. It's, it's another way of putting that in the language. Or I am, it is, you are. So what are these properties? So. Everything that, it, that is has being. So um, what goes with that? And as, what are the aspects of being? Well, if you read the textbooks, these are the ones you commonly see, the one, the true, and the good, and then the beautiful. And people will say, well, some say beauty is there, some say it isn't. Um, I think the argument isn't that whether or not beauty is a property of all that exists. It's whether it's one of the, the fundamental Transcendentals. Is it something that can be derived from the others, if you see what I mean? Um, now, I, I like the idea of putting beauty in there because I'm so concerned with it, so I'm going to put that in there. Uh, apparently, the medievals, they like to reduce it to three just because they like this numerical correspondence with the Trinity. That's what I read recently. Um, and so they reduced it to the one, the true, and the good. And you'll see how beauty is related to the other three in a second. So it's not a... Um, an unreasonable thing to do. 
So they're not denying that beauty is there, they're just expressing it in a slightly different way. There's this desire to relate what we see. And actually, that's the other thing that I, I didn't say, which is very important. Um, that if there is a form of existence that is not material, if we're going to be able to deduce anything about it, it helps us greatly if we can deduce things about the things that are, that we can perceive, and then by analogy, say these point to something else that does exist. Um, and so any discussion of God, for example, relies in the philosophical realm, relies on the fact that um, all things that exist participate, is the, the phrase that's used. They have being as God does in some way, by analogy, not in, in the full sense, as, as we'll discover. Um, but in some way, they point to those aspects which exist in the fullness in God. And if that weren't so, if it weren't so that all things did, then it, we couldn't have that discussion. And some people don't want to. They will deny that. Um, Thomas Aquinas also has, um, in De Veritate, uh, two other um, transcendentals, which aren't referred to that often. Um, res, in Latin, a thing, and aliquid, I think, um, another thing or something else. And very often, I'm going to get back to that. I'm going to describe what these mean in a second. But um, I put those there because right at the end, I'm going to come back to this because um, uh, the, the thing, what it's saying is actually that all things are relational in some way, that everything is a thing in itself and to the other thing, everything is something else to other things. In other words, it's implying that there is this relational aspect between objects. And furthermore, if there, what, how can they be related? Well, there is a mind, there is an intellect that is placing them together, that seeing that is related to that. Just as we've been doing so far in this discussion by saying um, all things that exist have these properties and we can relate them in your mind. This is a, we're thinking about this. We're relating all things that exist by having this discussion. And so it's saying that every object that exists is, is either one thing or the other. It is in relation to something else. And so rel this relational aspect is intrinsic to being. Nothing is absolutely isolated. Um, and in the ultimate, of course, it exists in the mind of God. The intellect is the mind of God that thinks it and it is. So to God, the thing is the other. Um, to the other, um, it is the thing and God is the other. So it depends where you're looking at it from, I think. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, and I will define these terms, don't worry. I just have to think about what order to do it in. So the highest form, and this is, this is important, um, the ultimate standard of the transcendentals is, is God. So God, the way that we put this in philosophy, and again, so many of these things, I'm trying to introduce the subject. You have whole lecture series that don't even cover what I've covered so far today. <laughs> okay, so I'm try, there's going to be all sorts of questions. That, but um, as I, as I mentioned, that if, that if we get our being from God, God is the fullness of existence. And so the fact that we exist is a participation in a limited way of the being that God possesses. Um, and that's what distinguishes us, incidentally, from each other, because we have a, a, a reduced form of existence. 
Um, but it's reduced in different ways depending on who we are or what we are. And that's how we can tell the difference to each, each other. And if that's true, then that allows for the possibility of one being that is just pure existence. And that being is God. And, it's the f and so he is being with a capital B is the way that you describe it. And therefore, he is the standard, the ultimate standard in a single utterance, if you like, of, of what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. And we can see that in our ability to judge this, therefore, we can make all sorts of analyses of the things themselves. But what's going to help us greatly to make the judgments of these things is also our perception of good, the good, the true, and the beautiful in their ideal forms. In other words, our relationship with God. Now, it's not the only thing. So, we, we can't say automatically that because I have, I know I've got this refined artistic taste, therefore my relationship with God is way above all of you lot. So we, there are other things too, and clearly my humility has uh, <laughs> got something to do with that as well, and so we can question that. There are other aspects which point to my relationship with God, but it, it, nevertheless, um, the degree to which I have a, um, a, a good relationship with God will affect my ability to see the pure standard uh, to which then I can start to make a, an intuitive measurement, an intuitive grasp of what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. Right, I'm just going to come forward so I can see this. Okay, beauty. Actually, I want, I'm going to go back to that. I thought I'd change the, old, the order. So let's talk about these in turn. One is what, what do we mean by all things are one? Well, it, something has a unity of being when it is an entity. Um, so in other words, this book is not simply just a collection of atoms uh, that make it up, carbon and whatever else is in a book. Um, it has, there's an idea behind it which has formed it in a particular way that has um, given it a purpose and a use, and it is an entity, we call it a book. And the whole is not simply the sum of the, the various parts. It creates, through the network and the interrelationships of the parts that are contained within it, it has a unity, and that allows us to call it a book, or a person, or a table. It is a, it is a thing. Um, and you can it's, it's actually quite difficult. You can talk about degrees of unity that things have. Um, and again, a whole topic there. But what, what we mean is but that we consider things as entities in themselves. The, the, the way that people who would deny this would say, there is no such thing as a table or a person or a god. Uh, well, they wouldn't, let's get a, let's, they wouldn't even entertain the idea of God. If we look at material things, they'd say, that's just, that's just you imposing that, this, this idea in your mind. You're trying to impose an order. Okay. A horse isn't really a horse. It's just a collection of atoms that, that individually are doing things. We, we group them together in our mind and say horse. Well, we don't believe, I, I don't believe that. What this is saying is that there really is an entity that has a form behind, that, con, that contains it, an idea behind it, um, and that actually um, makes it one in itself. And all things that exist, exist as things. And even if you break it up, then the atom is the thing, or the quark is the thing. Okay, you can, it, it doesn't mean that it's indivisible. All thing, most things are divisible apart from God. Uh, but um, it, do, it does mean that when we're looking at something, uh, we consider the whole. 
We're going to have, are we going to ask a question? We're going to break in just a few minutes, so I'll, I'll, I'll allow questions at that stage. Don't let me forget, though. I'm not fobbing you off. <laughs> okay. Um, the knowability of being the true. Um, so what it's saying is that all that exists can be known. And immediately then, this emphasizes this relational aspect, doesn't it? It says there is an intellect outside the thing that exists that can... You might say the intellect penetrates it, or there's some energy or something coming out of the object that allows the two to relate to each other, and it can be known. Okay, so and this, this is important. All that exists can be known. Now, our we may know it incompletely. Um, we may not have a full knowledge, and until in this life, we're very likely to have full knowledge of anything. Um, but nevertheless, we can know true things about what we perceive. Um, and this is, again, an important aspect that, that uh, as Christians, we, we believe that what we perceive through our senses, again, may be distorted in some ways, our perception, even what we do with the information through our senses, because of the fall and because of our impurity, may be distorted as well. There is a truth that underlies this, and it's good enough for us to discern true things about realities that exist beyond ourselves. Um, and this is true even of, of God. We, the, we can get into the ways in which we know God. Our knowledge is certainly incomplete in this, in this life, but nevertheless, we can know that he exists at the very least. The good is the desirability of being, and this is actually where the will comes in. Um, the de we desire what is good. Um, now, this might seem strange to people. You say, well, I don't desire everything that exists. Uh, some things I definitely want to escape from. Um, but what it's saying is when, when we have full knowledge of, of what something is and its true purpose and it's, uh, in, its, in its right place, then it is good and it is desirable. And we certainly want to know it. We want to know all things. Um, and so... It, it appears to us good in itself. Uh, the reason that we dislike things or we find things, uh, I will get onto this in a second, uh, things ugly or evil is because things aren't as they ought to be. Sometimes that's in our perception, sometimes that's in the thing itself. Uh, we live in a fallen world. But nevertheless, if things are as they ought to be, then they are good, the full goodness of, of in the thing itself. Okay, so I'm going to go back now to beauty. Did I go past it? Yeah. And that's where I'm going to stop for the questions for, and the break. So beauty, as I mentioned, that some people say that it derives from the others. Beauty is defined as the radiance of being. And um, sometimes it, you might have, those who study beauty, and I've done aesthetics, will be aware of these three properties of beauty. Integrity, due proportion, proportion and clarity. They come from Thomas Aquinas. And um, what Thomas Aquinas says, something that is beautiful, when it has integrity or integritas, then the whole um, is properly suited to its purpose. So we have to know what it's for. And then when we know that it's well suited as a whole, as an entity, for its purpose, um, we appreciate it. Um, and so 
somehow this thing can communicate. The, if beauty is the radiance of being, then what it's saying is that there is, again, there is this interrelationship. Now, very often when you see discussions of this, and, and Thomas Aquinas will use this, they use the analogy of light because in, the, the very idea that I can know something about you um, is because I can perceive you at a distance and the light is hitting me. Um, but in principle, through the senses, we can, we can know things that aren't us. That's the, that's the point. And so there is this interconnection, this interrelationship. Um, and it's not always by light. I mean, things can be perceived in other ways. Um, but the, the information about the object is um, radiating out of it. And uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about the power of being. He actually uses that phrase. Um, and again, this is an important point. It, it assumes that um, if, you look, if you consider the universe, for example, that it is made to be known. And, and as we are the, uh, the, the foremost rational beings that we know of in the universe, the creatures in the material world, um, made to be known by us. God made this for us to be known. And we, this, we relate to the, the, even the furthest reaches of the universe in that respect. Is, made to be known by us and for us to know it all. Um, and integrity is the radiance of unity. Due proportion is the radiance of goodness. Each part is in the right place relative to each other. That makes it desirable. Um, I always find that one a bit of a stretch, but it fits the pattern nicely. So, um, but that's what my teacher told me. And then Caritas, the radiance of truth. That certainly. I have, what is it? Um, I have to know what it is. It has to communicate myself to it. Um, and if you went into an art museum and said, as many people do, a modern art museum, what is it? Okay. Um, they, would, they would say that's the wrong question. And you say, I don't find this beautiful at all. I don't think, on the whole, the artist wouldn't be offended because they're not trying to produce something that's beautiful, in my experience. They don't think, that's, they don't think it's something that's worth doing. They've separated... Uh, beauty and goodness uh, in their minds. Um, but a, an interesting little example is that um, I, when I was teaching physics at high school years and years ago, there was a piece of medical equipment in the foyer of the school. And um, you couldn't tell. What, I never knew what it was. I mean, I, I just hope I never had to go through an examination under this thing. I mean, you turned handles and there were cogs intertwining. But it, you really had no idea what it was supposed to do. This is why it was so interesting. And so I would put it on, on the, the table in front of the students at the end of the class. And I would say to them, what is your reaction to this? And what's the first question they ask you? They, they, they don't know what to say because what is it? They, they can't, without that information, they don't know how to react to it. Um, they need to know something about it. And what's lacking is the radiance of truth in that object. Now, it didn't matter so much for the medical equipment. Someone could tell you and, ah, okay, there we go. Um, but it wasn't there in itself. It wasn't the most beautiful piece of medical equipment it could be. And I said, do you think it's beautiful? I remember saying that to them. And they would say, I don't know. I don't know what it is. They, they felt intuitively they needed that information before they could say it. Okay, now, just, I'm going to finish there. Yeah. Just that final point here is that um, 
when it came down to it, a, a lot of these studies of aesthetics um, don't, you can't argue that something is beautiful, as I'm going to say in a second, that we can look at beauty and, the, and our understanding of it and the transcendentals can help us to grasp the nature of things. But if I want to create something that is beautiful, I can talk philosophically about all of these things and it won't help me one iota, okay? I have to have a, a, a personal grasp at an intuitive level of what beauty is. And the way to do that is by the knowledge of God, the ultimate standard, and exposure to beautiful things. And at an intuitive level, what we're saying is we are deep down forming our understanding of what these things are by reference to particulars. And so the more you're exposed to what is beautiful, the more your ability to apprehend what is beautiful will increase. And so that's why, as part of education, you want to um, expose children and th those you're forming to the highest examples of the culture and explain it to them so that they don't say, what is it? Um, they, they understand it. And then they, you're forming their ability to grasp these basic things. I have difficulty with uh, in unity to understand what it ah, is. Okay. And is it uh, about functionality? Is it about usefulness or purpose? Uh, is it sufficiency within itself? And what, what does that mean? Well, it's, it is difficult to understand. And I, I, must, I, I struggled with this. But what it's saying is that um, you can describe something as an entity. It, it's really sufficient in itself, although we have to be guarded when we say that, that um, the thing, this is a cup, and if we're, looking, if we're considering it as a cup, it has a unity. Everything, it, it is an entity, it is an object. It isn't simply polystyrene shaped like this, or separate polystyrene molecules that happen to be working together, and then we impose the order on it. It, it has an entity, it is a unity to it. I'm sorry? Um, okay, nothing is, yeah, nothing is superfluous within there. Um, Could we say things have natures? Ah, yes. So, um, things are, are made to a purpose and conform to the purpose as a whole. Actually, that's probably the best thing. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, as you were doing your talk, I was uh, looking at icons on my computer, and uh, uh, so the one that came up was, uh, I am the vine. Uh, so the vine, we are one, Christ is the head. Uh, I didn't, don't know if you're going to talk in the second part of your talk about the relationship between um, our relationships and our, and our ultimate end. So, um, I am a little bit. I'll come to that at the end. Uh, I, yeah, I sort of, the reason I introduced the, the res and the aliquid is to set it up. I don't really fulfill exactly what you're looking for, but I've set it up for that sort of discussion. Now, the objectivity of the transcendentals. This is probably what causes the most difficulty. And, and uh, I don't know if you ever had any one of these conversations. What's true for you is true for me, and what's true for me is true for me, and I'll stand in my truth, and you stand in yours, and um, all of this sort of thing. Um, how can this be? And, and if you're going to come, uh, I'm just thinking of my own conversations. The area where I come across the greatest resistance to the idea of objectivity, and I'll say what it means in a second, is this idea that people feel they're entitled to their own opinions. This is what they, they will say, that they feel they can form their own opinions and they're valid, and people have 
quite legitimately have different opinions about things. Um, so first of all, what are we talking about when we say the objectivity of the transcendentals? They are in the object that is seen. So we, we've been talking about the me as a knower, an intellect, um, whether great or small, a will, and something that I'm looking at and perceiving. Uh, that table is radiant and is communicating itself to me, and conversely, my intellect is penetrating it in some way so that I can know it. There's this interrelationship. But the truth that I perceive um, about it um, exists within that table. It's not simply me imposing this order or creating things. I, I can have additional ideas about it. I can deduce things about it. But the, the actual understanding of what it is um, are uh, emanating from the object itself. Uh, and what that means is, therefore, that the same information can be perceived by you and me. And when we have a discussion about a table in the, in the, the ideal, we should have an absolute correspondence of what we're talking about. Um, so in matters of truth and morality, it means that things that are true for me, if they're objective, are true for all. There's, there's, there's something that is good. It is objectively good. It is good for all people. Now, why is it that sometimes it doesn't appear like that? And we know that from our own experience. So first of all, there are some things in which we, we simply can't say definitively whether it is good or bad. In, when I, even that horrible, ugly crucifixion, um, that, the one that I thought was ugly, if somebody asserts that it's beautiful, in the end, I don't have any, uh, anything that I've, I've got other than my perception to argue with them. I, I, there are no absolute rules of beauty. I, we can start to discuss claritas and integrity and try and work out what it is, but in the end, it's very, very difficult for us to say who is right and who is wrong. Um, and that is the problem. That is why people w will always uh, fight back against this, they, and they want their, what they see as their freedom to decide. Um, now, the, the, we're putting aside revelation, okay, so th there are Ten Commandments when it comes to, and if we accept those, when it comes to morality and conduct, and they are absolute standards that are, are given to us, and provided we subscribe to them, they apply to us all. Now, the, the finer application of them, of course, in each, every, in each and every situation, no situation is precisely the same, so in the end, we have to individually apply them, but the principles that we're applying are the same. Now, there's nothing, there are no Ten Commandments of Beauty. So if I'm thinking about a picture, um, in the end, as I say, I'm just saying, well, I think it is, and you don't. As, as my mum used to say to me, yes, but I like Picasso. And I, I what can I say? I, no, mum, you're wrong. I, I, what can I do? I, there's nothing about that, that I can say. Um, however, remember where we, we started with this. We're saying that we believe that although our perception can be flawed, um, we can have a different subjective reaction, even to the same object. This doesn't undermine the objectivity of the beauty of the painting. That, that painting we saw has a degree of beauty 
that is within the object itself. I would assert that, uh, but our ability to perceive it can vary. And this is what is, what is changing, our ability to perceive it. Um, now, does that mean that we're lost? We can say that in theory it's objective, but in practice it's purely subjective. It really is just an opinion because we, we, you know, there's no ultimate authority short of God coming down saying you're right and you're wrong. How do we, how do we ever know? Well, actually there is a standard that we can look to in some cases. First of all, we can ask ourselves the questions about beauty. We're still asking ourselves what we feel, but do I think it's suited to its purpose? I acknowledge the possibility that my perception is wrong, okay? That it, it, what I feel isn't necessarily right. Um, the, just the possibility. And then, if that's the case, I can ask certain questions about it. Is the, first of all, is it beautiful? Not just do I like it, but is it beautiful? Do I, and, and because these are objective qualities, they exist in the object, and they're all aspects of being. We're not talking about different compartments that sit alongside each other. We're talking about different facets of the same thing, being. They can't be in contradiction. Something can't be good and not beautiful. Or should we say the degree of goodness and the degree of beauty and the degree of truth must be all the same within an object, because what we're doing is perceiving its being in different ways, but we're perceiving the same thing. There is no separation of those things within it, actually. Um, so, a clue that we might be wrong is, I think it's good, but it's ugly. Okay, somewhere along the line, I'm perceiving something incorrectly. Maybe then I can start to examine that. Um, and I can ask questions about what I think the aspects of beauty individually. I'm going to give you some of these later uh, little tests that came up. But the point here is that th there is a subjective element to this, and we must concede it. In asserting objectivity, we simply can't say, and Velazquez is beautiful, and if you don't agree, it, you are wrong. Uh, we're not in a position to say that, and that tends to be how this conversation runs, and it doesn't help us very much when we do that. So, in fighting against the subjectivity, we don't deny sub the subjective element. It does exist, and it's real, and people know that. And if you try to say it isn't there or it shouldn't be there, they'll react against it, because I always did when people tried that with me. Um, but what we say is our ability to perceive varies. And maybe there's a, a, there's a standard that we can appeal to and look to that we'll both res, uh, accept that might decide. Now, um, if they're not religious or they're not Catholic in moral things, you know, it's a difficult discussion. You look to natural law, for example, and you can actually have a philosophy class and begin from first principles, you might win them over. Um, in terms of, you have to go from where people are, but in terms of, uh, beauty and a painting, um, what I do is look to tradition. Remember that all of this begins with common experience. Even if you go back to Aristotle or Plato or whoever the philosopher is from which you're deriving the discussion on aesthetics, for example, what they're doing is looking around them, seeing how people respond, analyzing it, and we're relying on the strength of those observations and that analysis. Now, 
if what they say is correct, the reason that people believe over the centuries so much of what they say is that it appears to be true for so many people over a long period of time. In other words, if you're looking at paintings, while something that's painted today uh, we're not so sure about, but something that has um, transcended its own time, to use that word in a different sense, it's, it's passed through generations and still it's thought of as good and beautiful uh, and worthy of the liturgy, most likely is. In other words, we respect tradition. And that's the strongest principle we have where there aren't absolute rules and principles that define, that are, can be applied precisely in which both parties res respect. Um, so my arguments with regard to art, for example, in churches, aren't that we can't have anything new or I can say definitively that shouldn't be there. I'm prepared to say that, that, the, that painting that I thought was ugly, perhaps it's my perception that's wrong. But what I would say is it doesn't correspond to the traditional forms. And while in my home I can have whatever I like and I can have whatever I judge to be good and true and beautiful if, if I'm interested in those things, in a church we're talking about the saving of souls. I want to be conservative on the whole. And so I'm going to respect tradition. And so the phrase that you use here, in, for example, in choosing art is the, uh, the phrase I've heard is the hermeneutic of continuity. In other words, keep doing what you're doing and don't change anything unless you have to. Um, every new age has its slightly different demands, slightly new perceptions, and every tradition will actually modify itself to speak to those people. But always it's the minimal. It's tr they're trying to do as, change as little as possible and stay within the bounds of what constitute the principles of the tradition. So what, all what the, the, it's consensus over a period of time is the best we have. Um, and still someone can say, I don't accept it, in which case you have to agree to differ. I don't know what else you can do. Um, but none of this um, actually undermines the principle of objectivity. It says, in the end, we have a different perception of, of what exists in that object. But I still assert that, the, that beauty is an objective quality. What we're perceiving is real and it's in that object. It's not simply a matter of opinion, it's both and, should we say. Um, or there's a, there's a subjective element to this. So I like it. The, the best example, I, have, I was struggling with this, a bit like my uh, answer to the unity. I, uh, father came in, as he now is, and saved me there. <coughs> um, I was struggling with a discussion on art and somebody said, really what I've just been describing, and a, a philosophy professor put his hand up and helped me out. And he said, isn't it like food? Most of us understand that I like it is not the same as it is good. Um, and so we know that that's most people, or many people will like that, but they would know that beyond a certain point, it's not good food. It's good to the degree that we have it um, in the right times, but um, we know that we should be having meat and vegetables and good food and vitamins and all the rest of it. Um, and we can see the difference because we respect an alternative authority that examines the, the food itself and we believe that that goodness is contained within the food. It's not just simply my metabolism is, says this and your metabolism says that. We believe it's true for all 
people because scientists say so. Okay, so, and what are scientists doing? They're simply examining the object. They're looking at that and they're giving us qualities within the object itself. And so these other qualities, the transcendentals, it's just like food. Um, so, and I thought that was a good illustration. So, um, what it therefore is ugliness and evil and something that is untrue? Um, is it, are they positive qualities? Well, probably you, many of you all know. They're not, actually. What they are, they represent what we call privations. In other words, everything that exists is good in its being. Um, when something is bad, it's not that it doesn't have a quality of badness, it's just simply that it's not as good as it ought to be. And again, it comes down to this perception of its nature, its purpose, what it's meant to be. Um, and when we perceive that something isn't, is distorted from what it ought to be, then it is bad. A bad person is still a person, they're just not the person they ought to be. Um, and they're still good in themselves, in their being. Um, and what we're referring to is that deficiency. Um, that's assuming that we're perceiving it correctly. Um, but we might not be, you know, I can make a judgment, and this is a point I think you were getting at, about something, and it, and it could be my perception is wrong. I, you know, I think you're a really bad person. Now, is that you or is it me? Maybe I'm just, you know, I just had a bad experience or something. I don't know. Um, therefore, we can lead people into falsely overestimating the beauty or goodness of something by distortion in the communication. In other words, people can use this cynically to do the, have the opposite, to make people believe that something is good when in fact it's bad. Artists, I know, every, art, every advertising hoarding is airbrushed. There's not a single person looking as they, ought, as they really are in any photograph that advertises anything. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to provoke a disordered reaction, um, cynically manipulating the look in order to appeal to the disordered part of us. Um, and so they're, they're making use of that subjective element and our ability to perceive things wrongly. And I just use this. This, this is an example that I use in... Um, lectures about Christian ideals, and I use this as an inverse ideal. An ideal, Christians are supposed to idealize. They portray things um, materially as they are, so that they communicate what it is, but at the same time they um, change things very slightly. They idealize to reveal higher tr invisible truths about it, the fact that a man has a soul. Um, you incorporate that into gesture and expression, so they don't just look like a dead wax model or something. Remember, a picture is just a snapshot in time, so you've got to give a sense that this is changing over time in the way that you portray the snapshot. Now, this, I would say, is an inverse ideal. I, I, I think it's meant for 12-year-olds or something, I, the age group that's buying this, and there's nothing explicitly pornographic in it, but it's definitely saying something about man and men and women um, that I would say is not good for 12-year-olds, so just in the way that it is communicated. It's, it's, you know, we've got two arms and two legs, not quite fingers, I can see, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's the point, that you can manipulate this and through the communication, distort the radiance of being. So we're perceiving that image correctly as an entity, it's, it's an image, 
But the purpose of an image really is, ought to be to portray what is true, and it's not doing that. And this is the point that I was making earlier. They can't contradict each other. So you get um, different definitions of beauty. John Paul II, in his letter to artists, called beauty the good made visible, when he's talking about uh, visible art. So he's saying that, that beauty um, always reveals something good. And by implication, if it's ugly, um, it must be something bad. You can't have a contradiction. As, and I, I use that Grunewald crucifixion, uh, the one where, for the hospital, to illustrate how even when the image is portraying something that is distorted and disfigured, the image and the perception we have it has a beauty to it because of the truths that are associated with it. Um, and so it is the good made visible. And that's the great skill of an artist, by the way, is to, is to portray difficult truths that allow you to transcend the suffering that's being portrayed. Um, it's easy to portray bad things powerfully, especially in the art forms that we have today. The, the difficulty is to portray um, good things powerfully um, because the, all the art forms we have are products of the modern age and they're, they're directed towards uh, portraying despair and evil and ugliness, uh, the deprivation, the anti-idealistic forms, if I can use that phrase. Um, you could also consider beauty to be truth manifested in an external form. So if we think of that previous painting, um, that there's a certain, it's, it's telling us something about what it means to, what, in the view of the artist, what it means to be a woman. Um, and it's wrong. It, so there's a distortion there. A good one, a good painting would reveal true femininity, properly understood and, and would be designed with the observer in mind so that it provokes an ordered reaction in the person that's one of love rather than lust. Um, and so that's the point that I'm making. It's in a picture, it's the form. And, and I'm using the form as an artist, would not, not as a philosopher. It was the, they're not unconnected, I know, but um, just, just the external appearance. Um, the form transmits truth as much as content. So this is what I was troubled by with that ugly crucifixion, as I call it, is that although the content was there, the form was actually the form of modern styles and was contrary to it. The, the, the style in which it was painted was communicating um, the opposite of what the content was, and there's this conflict there. Um, and so... That's, should we say, that's my interpretation of what was troubling me. And so what can I do when I think it looks ugly, but that it looks true? Um, I can ask myself certain questions, rather than just saying, do I like it? Which is as far as most people get in assessing things. Let's try and ask, even those who are skeptical, if you ask some of these questions, you'll find that it leads them down a certain direction. Just to say, is it beautiful? Um, you'll find that many people who say they like it will say no. It means they don't understand really what beauty is. There's, there's, their sort of formation is so low. But they will say no. And so then you have to convince them that beauty is something that it, it ought to have beauty, and that's your next challenge if you want to convince them. But at least we can ask ourselves that question. Um, th that second question was um, done by an architect called Christopher Alexander. I don't know if any of you heard He's on the West Coast, and he wrote books. They're sort of neo-pagan. He's looking to natural beauty, but at least he's fighting against modern architecture. Um, 
So you, you, I would look at his books guardedly, but he's got something to say. But what, he did these tests, which were very interesting. He put photographs of things in front of people and said, do you like it? And you get a, a yes or a no, um, probably 50-50. But then he found that, and, and do you think this is beautiful? He gets slightly more correlation to the uniformity of opinion. But of course, people's understanding of what beauty is varies. But when he started to ask questions about the, that relate to the nature of beauty in some way and evoke that sense in us, without arousing prejudice of what we think it is, he suddenly found there was a very, very high correlation. The, the one that got the, the, the greatest response was, would you like to spend eternity with this? Um, and when you did that, you got exactly the same answer from just about everybody, yes or no. Uh, I, they didn't show them that one, but I'm hoping, you know, my faith in human nature <laughs> is no. <laughs> um, but the, the point is that if this emanates from, common, from consensus, from human experience, this is what we have to go on here, and we trust ultimately that this is revealing something true, this is what our assertion, then the consensus over time, if you ask that question, would reveal something that we can, a pattern we can uh, discern that does show us the truth. It, it, it's not infallible, it's not absolutely reliable, but it's the best we have. Um, would you like to pray with this? Is it suited to its purpose? Would, does it help your prayer in the liturgy? I can imagine things that, like Chagall, I hear many people say they like Chagall as an artist, actually, including Pope Benedict, so I had to sort of listen to that. But, but at the same time, Pope Benedict, I've never heard him say that he thinks Chagall should be in the liturgy. When he talks about art in the liturgy, he talks about the Baroque, the Gothic, and the iconographic. In other words, he points to tradition. But at a personal level, he clearly loves Chagall. I've heard, it, heard him say so. Um, so um, he's describing art, which is for a different purpose, personal, devotional, or in some way reflective or meditative, is different from liturgical. Um, is it true? Now, the content is, so in that sense it is. Um, and because I, I think it's ugly, what, I, what it's telling me is that the form is, is not conforming to truth. The style, if you like, of the artist. Somewhere there's something in that that isn't consistent with the truth that it's trying to convey, even if the content, what it's painting, what he's painting is. And then finally, we are allowed to say, do you like it? Okay, if I'm choosing it for myself, or if it's for a church, even if it corresponds to all the traditions, it ticks all the boxes, do I think this congregation is going to respond to it at a personal level? We've, we've, we've done all the things we can to rule out something which we think is bad, but in the end, this is a legitimate question. There is a subjective element there. We don't want to eliminate that altogether. Um, otherwise, you'll lose people. Um, as I found, if anyone's ever tried to impose their tastes on anyone, you'll know what it's like. And in the, in the context of this, as I said, suffering in itself is an ugly thing. But when placed in context, which is Christian hope that transcends the suffering, in other words, it doesn't remove it, it says there is something greater that allows us to bear it joyfully, in the, as, the, as the martyrs would demonstrate to us, um, then there is a beauty to the whole picture. And the whole picture includes not just what we see, but what we know about it.
Now, this is um, the final point. So, I want to come back to those little referred to transcendentals, the Latin words res and aliquid, and if anybody's laughing at my pronunciation, it probably should be. I, I studied it for five years at high school, and I was absolutely useless at Latin. So, um, the, the thing and the other thing, if you like, something and something else. Um, and, the, and I'm going to connect this to the virtue of religion. And this is where I'm going to talk, I hope, to your point about the, our ultimate purpose. Because in the end, nothing is, uh, one of my assertions actually in my book, um, I talk about education, I say that uh, no subject, no subject is worth t teaching unless we can account for its, its uh, place in the overall purpose of human life. Um, if, it's, if it's not valid in some way in what a man is meant to be, then it shouldn't be on the curriculum. And if that teacher can't justify it, they shouldn't be teaching it because they don't understand why they're teaching it. Um, so, here we go. Um, as we said, we are naturally in relation to others, if, if this is right, that simply by the fact that we know and love each other. When it comes to other people, there's an interdynamic of love. Um, just to be in the presence of someone somehow makes that demand at a human level in a properly ordered way that there is an extension of one to the other, of love. Um, but even if we're talking about inanimate objects, um, I see that as an object, as a thing, res, but it is something else, not just in relation to me, but also, of course, in relation to God, the highest standard. I'm immediately making this comparison. And so what is beautiful in the world around us points to God. If, you, if you've ever been aware of the canticle of Daniel in the Liturgy of the Hours, oh, you know, all these springs of the, and wells and waters, just using the example we have, give praise to the Lord. Well, that stream doesn't literally give praise. What it does um, in the, when the Canticle of Daniel goes through all the creation lists it, is, is it provokes our praise. We relate to it and we say, the beauty that is in there is participating in the beauty of God. And we immediately make that connection. Um, and that is how we know, ultimately, that it has being. It's because we say, I am, it is. And we have this sense of the divine in some way. It's natural to us. Um, and so, I can't say I am without a you are. What, what do I mean by that? Um, remember that I said that right at the beginning of this process, the, the key assumption that all of modern philosophy rejects is that the idea that um, there is existence, there is being, um, and that is separate simply from the, the appearances of objects, okay? So that there, is, there is an understanding that something is, it has being. And the, the initial statement, therefore, for me in making that judgment is I am. I have an awareness that I exist, and therefore there's an I who's able to make this statement. I am, and then I look around me and I say it is. And there's immediately this, there's this interrelationship. Now, um, how do I know that I am? Where does that statement come from before I cast my eyes around to be able to look? Um, and it's because there's a relationship with God. The, uh, in fact, the logical progression of this 
is God is. He is who is, shall we say. I am who am. That's how he described himself to Moses. Um, and then God says, David Clayton, you are and I am. Okay? And my awareness of myself is because I am aware that in relation to the ultimate being, I have being. I'm able to ascertain that I have this at a very instinctive level. I'm not a philosopher. I just have a sense of myself. And the phrase that's used uh, in Gaudium Spes, I think, is God reveals man to himself. It's by this interrelational aspect that I know that I am because I re I'm aware of myself in relation to another. Um, and so God's love, and of course a relationship with God, means not simply an, a, an, um, a cold relationship in the way that I'd have with a table, it's, an, it's, a, it's personal, it's, it's a relationship in love. So what happens is that I, God loves me first, I accept that, and then it's returned, and there is this dynamic. And that's actually, being, as we've heard, is a dynamic. It's, as a philosopher would say, it is an act. It is, it is a verb. It's not a, not a, na um, a noun, okay, in the sense that um, what is it? Um, as soon as you ask that question, you're giving attributes. It is a, a horse has four legs or something like that. But quite separate from that, everything has being. It is. And so I can't do that without this relationship with God. So if we want to preserve a true philosophy, even though philosophy is strictly the observation of the world around us, it has to start with that I am. Otherwise, you go wrong. And that's what's happened, as I say, with all the modern philosophies, is that opening statement went wrong. Um, and even Plato and Aristotle didn't get it all right. Uh, they made mistakes. And how do we preserve, what sustains that right reaction? And the answer is our relationship with God. How do we express that relationship with God in its highest form? It's the worship of God. Um, in other words, there is no true philosophy separate from the church, or is very, very unlikely to be. And the virtue that we express, that St. Thomas calls it the virtue of religion. Um, it's, so we, we're aware, aren't we, of the seven virtues, the four cardinal virtues and the three theological. There is an eighth, which St. Thomas refers to, which is a natural virtue in man. He wants to worship God. He wants to give God what, what is right to him. And he's aware of this because he's aware of his own being. At some level, man wants to worship God. Um, and if we want to um, preserve the truth, um, the greatest force for sustaining this and um, keeping, the, giving us our right start is right worship of God, is the expression of this virtue of religion. And as we know, the liturgy, the worship of God, is the source and summit of human life. Um, everything that we learn feeds into our ability to love God and reinforces that initial statement, I am, you are, it is, if you like. The it is, which is the, the philosophy, um, by which we then reinforce the fact that there is a connection with God. But really, there is no philosophy without that relationship with, with God. And so, even in the context of philosophy, which can be studied without a religious aspect, and usually is, 
if we want to preserve it, it's in the liturgy of the church that, that all of this, that the truth is preserved. And that ultimately is what St. Paul says is the purpose of the church. One of the key purposes is the preservation of truth. And this is happening deep inside us through the practice of the virtue of religion and the right worship of the church. And it's interesting, I was just um, talking to a Dominican, it had to be, who was telling me about St. Thomas, talking about the, the virtue of religion. He said that um, it's not, he talked about the virtue of religion more than any of the other virtues, but in commentaries it's virtually unknown when people commentate on St. Thomas in the last 200 years, is what he, what he said to me. And of course, all of this coincides in the, the Roman church, I have to acknowledge, um, in pr problems with the liturgy, problems you know, in the way that we deal with modernity, the problems of the Enlightenment, um, all interconnected. So what's the answer? It's liturgical reform. This is the key thing. And from that, you get right philosophy, right theology, Everything emanates from that because our starting assumptions based upon our sense of ourselves in relation to God at the, the deepest level, the ground of being, is, is set right in us. Um, and so this is why, again, the, the liturgy, that moment when I, that I had in the Brompton Oratory that drew me to the church at some level, that's what was going on inside me. I, I don't remember proclaiming I am, you are, it is, as I walked out. But at some level, that is what was going on. And this was working its way through and up into my consciousness from inside because of my experience of the liturgy. I, there was this interpersonal relationship, this dynamic of love. Certainly, I was aware that God had offered himself to me. And at some level, I was responding. And I was beginning that internal process of philosophy that led to my conversion without ever studying it formally, the philosophy side of it, till, till much later. Um, and I think I'll stop there. We've got about 15 minutes for questions. Thank you. Do you think that that is a problem in our society today, especially like in a lot of the Protestant churches, you see they move away from the liturgical worship style? Um, I think anything that uh, s s uh, suppresses or dampens man's natural uh, inclination to worship God well is a bad thing. Um, so without knowing specifically what you have in mind, uh, you know, yes, the, 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 the standard of worship is that which is articulated by the church and it's to the degree that as an institution we express it. Um, and anything that moves away from that is of critical importance. It's not just a, a, an additional thing. And um, the one thing that uh, the questioner asked me uh, at this point about our last ends, that, that the liturgy, of course, um, leads us into our ultimate end, which is the fulfillment of that relationship with God. So there's the point that I wanted to make, that... Um, that uh, union with God in heaven is the end which we're made for. And so all of these things that we're discussing reinforce, not, it's not just that the worship is there to help philosophy, philosophy is there to help the worship, that all of this is directed to um, the, a union with God. And so the, the, the earthly liturgy is a participation in the heavenly liturgy where the saints and angels are already in that perfect 
fulfilled relationship and um, a dynamic of love uh, that, that goes on in heaven. And so we need a sense of that um, in order to be able to make sense of what we see around us. And so any diminishing of that is a bad thing, I would say. Yeah. I would like you to talk a little bit more about your hermeneutic of continuity because um, it seems to me that one of the roles of art often is to surprise us or to shock us out of an element of complacency that we can get into that can go against our spiritual growth, right? And if you look at Jesus in his life, right, he said a lot that was shocking in a way to, to the world and to, still to us, right? Whereas the Pharisees are often that rigid <coughs> holding to tradition. So I know you're talking in an element of the liturgy, but can you unpack a little bit why you're saying we need to change the minimal? Yeah, so the, um, I don't know that anything that moves us to something greater is good. Um, and I mean, we need to be shocked. I, I would say that's a personal reaction to being uh, to, dependent upon when, when fe uh, presented with what is highest. Um, it needn't be shocking. It, it, can be, you know, it depends how attached we are to the way we are, I suppose. Um, but one hopes that at the very least, all that is beautiful will inspire us to the highest ideal. As St. Paul says, set your sights on heavenly things. We need to aim for the highest while being aware that in this life, it, it, the best we can hope for is a journey towards that, which will culminate in our heavenly existence. Um, now, um, the, with regard to the hermeneutic of continuity, um, I said that you should, if, if there are timeless principles that speak to all people. There's something universal in, um, in good art, beautiful art and true art that speaks to all of us. And so we should, not, we should change as little as possible. However, I'm not saying that you don't change anything. And it's very important actually, because this is one of the problems. The, the flaw which says you don't change anything is called historicism, which says old good, new bad. We don't, we don't, as long as it was done before 1962 or they, you know, whatever year you want to call in mind, that's good. Anything that's modern is bad. Now, we need to be discerning. And in fact, every tradition, if it's to be a living tradition, uh, I'm not talking about the liturgy here, which you know, uh, does grow organically as we with these phrases, but that's a, a very sort of hot topic. I'm talking about artistic traditions here. Um, but the, every artistic tradition really must speak anew to each, each generation that comes along. But it must do so whilst being aware of its own roots. So without being a total dislocation from the past, um, Christian art does need to speak to people today. Um, you meet people where they are temperamentally and then draw them in to those timeless principles, which means that you must have something of today stylistically in what you do, as well as something that is of all time. Um, and that is the challenge of the artist. Now, in the liturgy, um, I would say that you want to be cons as conservative as possible. In, in the art forms outside, in the wider culture, experiment as much as you like, but if you want to succeed, and, and, it, and it's going to do the job that Christian culture ought to do, which is ultimately directing people to the beauty of the forms in the liturgy. That's what, what we want to do, because that is the participation in our ultimate end. Um, 
the, the, the responsibility of Christian artists is not simply to recreate past forms. It is to understand them deeply and then reapply the principles that define them so that they speak to people today. Um, now, an example of where this has been done is, uh, in the context of liturgical art actually is in the Eastern Church and the iconographic movement, which was, is not a continuous line of imagery. This was reestablished in the mid-20th century by um, people who did an analysis of what they felt was good art and the names that you tend to get a um, an, an artist called Spensky, uh, a Russian, um, an artist called Gregory Krug, K-R-O-U-G, um, and then also um, a theologian called Vladimir Losky. Now, they made a personal analysis. They, 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 a lot of what you hear about icons, you don't read in the Church Fathers. They looked at it, analyzed it, and they created a set of principles, and they applied them, and they created a whole new... Um, tradition, if you like, I can use is not a contradiction term, of iconography that was consistent with what had gone in the past, but it, they understood deeply, um, if their analysis was correct, how it could evolve and change. And so now we are three, four, five generations of teachers and students um, since Ospensky, and the icons that are being produced are every, in that field, every bit as good as those of the past by the very best artists, and they participate in today's culture without compromising the, what essentially makes an, an, the iconographic tradition. Uh, as Catholics, we have to do that for our own culture. And what, what I'm trying to do is, is do a similar sort of thing in the context of the Gothic and the Baroque. And I don't think that in the end, what you'll end up with is pure Gothic or Baroque as we knew it as it was painted, it will be something that speaks anew to people today, but participates crucially in um, the essential elements of, the, of those traditions. Um, and so something must be changed. I'm, I'm not arguing against change. I'm just talking about a very, very discerning process. In the liturgical context, I'd be very, very conservative uh, because um, I wouldn't say just try anything and see what sticks. Uh, you know, I, you, I, because you're playing with people's souls, I'd be guarded and cautious and careful. But that still means we have to change. And if you look at what the church has written about art and music, it's never absolutely definitive. It always allows for the creation of new forms and encourages them. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.